Well, good evening. It is such a joy to be gathered with you. As you remain standing, let me begin tonight by reading for you a, a, a controversial passage. Let me start by reading for you a passage that, that we are going to wrestle with tonight as we think about, as we think about the end times. As we think about the return of Christ and, and believers being caught up into his presence and, and some of these complicated issues, as you stand, I'm going to read for you 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 4, verses 13, all the way through 18. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Here's what Paul says. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as, as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that those who are alive, who are, excuse me, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Look at this last verse. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Go ahead and have a seat right there as, as we stop. And, and uh, we're going to, over the next two weeks, we're going to handle two passages, both of which deal with aspects of, of the end times. But, but tonight, tonight I want to I set some things up for you by maybe, hopefully not, but maybe inching into what might feel a little bit morbid. The average lifespan for uh, those who live in the United States, 78 to 80 years old. That, that is the average lifespan. And so I look around in this room, and I see some people that, that you are probably, uh, according to that statistic, and, and maybe the Lord will bless you with an exceptionally long life, but, but you, you're on the last quarter of that. You, you've hit that 60-mile marker. You, you are, you're on that last quarter. You, you're nearing the end. Some in this room maybe aren't quite that far along. Some in this room, you're, you're more in the middle. I mean, you got Tommy Jones in the back. He's been giving me a bad time because he just turned 40, right? He did a halfway spot, and this next week, I get to join him right there, right? And so he's like, you got two days left, Mike. You got two days left, and then it's all downhill from here, right? My response to that is said, no, sir, I'm in my prime. <laughs> and so, so those who are in the halfway marker, we... We're starting to think about these things. We're starting to think about these things in, in a more serious manner than, than maybe we ever have before. And then we look at those in this room who are, they're a quarter of the way there or less. I mean, we got these, these young ones in here, and they're like a, you know, a tenth of the way there. And, and it doesn't even register in their mind. They, they don't even think about the fact that, that death is coming. It's coming for you, and it's coming for me. And none of us know exactly how many days we're going to get. Uh, hopefully, we have, we have many days that are fruitful and productive here on earth, but we don't know if it's going to be today, tomorrow, next week, next year, or decades from now. This is, this is a sobering truth. And this isn't just a sobering truth for you as an individual as you contemplate your mortality. This is a sobering truth as we look around and we realize that, that we have so many loved ones in so many different places in life. Everyone in this room, I'm sure you have dear friends who have reached that 80-year mark, that, that mark. That's where they are. And you see the effect it's having. And you... You worry for them, and you care for them, and you love them, as you should. We, we all, not just in our own life, but, but all around us, we know. We know that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. 
And if we're honest, not only is death coming, but death is scary. I know we can put on a good faith and smile about it and act like it, you know, oh, everything's fine. Death is scary. And it's painful. But for those who are in Christ, I want to remind you tonight that death is not the end. For those who are in Christ, the moment this physical body, as Paul says, we're going to look at later, this tent that we have, the moment this tent expires, this body is done, that doesn't mean you're done. That doesn't mean the story is over. That doesn't mean that you have no hope. And, and so tonight, tonight I want, I want to begin to wrestle with some of these, some of these most important questions in life. I want to ask you to begin to wrestle with how, how do you keep the pain of death from overwhelming your life? How do we keep the fear of death from becoming a deep, dark shadow that consumes us? Here's what I want to ask you. How do you stay on track with your faith when you face the reality of your own death? or of the death of those who you love. And here's what tonight's passage is going to remind us of. Or maybe, maybe, for, this might be a first time hearing some of this for some of us. Here's what tonight's passage is going to reveal to us and encourage us with. Here's our big idea. You stay on track with hope when you look to Christ in death. If you want to stay on track in your faith, if you want to continue to hold on to hope, there's really only one way to do it when you are facing your own end of life or when you are, when you are carrying the weight of someone near you who is facing that. And the only way to do it is when you look to Christ when, when you're facing this death. This is what our passage tonight is going to remind us of. So, so will you turn with me? If you haven't yet, open up your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 13. In this passage, if we allow it, I think it will guide our hearts and our minds through the pain and the fear of death. This passage, here's, here's the deal. This passage, if you allow it tonight, it will train you to look to Christ in the pain and in the fear. And so, so let's open it up. Let's start right in verse 13. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to walk through it, and the, and the very first thing we, we see in verse 13 is that there is, that there is a pain in death. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, be, excuse me, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others, as others do who have no hope. Now, Look at the reality of this verse. Let's just begin. I think this verse is actually very comforting. See, as a Christian, when you deal with death, your own death or the death of a loved one, the Bible does not instruct you to ignore it. The Bible does not instruct you to fake like everything's happy and everything's good and, and you, can, you can just kind of put on a, a mask and be like, oh yeah, uh, death has no impact on me whatsoever. This passage it actually begins with, with the reality of, of believers who grieve. It begins with that reality. I, I think what this passage reminds us of is that ignorance about last things is painful, not bliss. When we're talking about death, when we're talking about, in a moment, the, the, the catching up or, or the rapture, when we're talking about these things, if you're ignorant about this, if you are in the dark, if you are unaware, it's painful. It causes fear. It causes tension. That word ignorant, it means to be uninformed. It means to be un unaware. Paul is not pointing at them with, with, a, with a condemning finger. He, he's, just, he's just explaining the reality. That it, it's not good to not understand these things. The Bible itself, believers, Christians, it instructs you. It gives you understanding. It gives you knowledge in how we're supposed to think about these things. It, it helps us not to be ignorant. ignorant. Now, now, the context of this, the context is 
The people in Thessalonica, Paul is writing to a specific church. The people in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, they were concerned, they were worried, they were scared, they had this tension because they thought that other believers who had already died and who were buried, Paul here uses the word asleep, they were worried that these other believers were going to miss out on Christ's return. They were going to miss out on Jesus' resurrection. They were going to miss out on, on what we're going to look at in a moment is Jesus catching them up or taking them up to be with him. They were worried. Imagine this for a minute. If Paul came, he had three weeks with them, and then he got kicked out of town. He did not get to teach them every nuance and every belief. And so he left likely before he fully explained these concepts. And then... Some of these believers died, maybe even were martyred. Remember that there was so much animosity against these brand new Christians in this city? Maybe some of them were even put to death. And so now there's Christians that are left there and they are heartbroken because they're saying, we are waiting for Jesus to come and get us. And now they're dead. What about them? This is, this is a, a fear, this is a worry, this is a great concern. And so Paul here, he is writing to address this concern. What he has in mind here, it's, it's the death of those who have died before Christ has come back to, to receive them. Listen, he, he's not saying those who are asleep, that their, their body is sleeping, that, that they've died and their soul remains in their body. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But this is where we start, that, that there is a real pain in death. And, and being ignorant about how these things work, it, it just compounds that pain. See, the death of believers, it does. It causes pain. But, but what Paul does here in verse 13 is he shows us that pain is tempered by hope. It's a grief that's not just a pure grief where the only thing that is being expressed is sorrow for those who have passed. For believers, when we grieve the loss of a loved one, it's a grief that it's mixed. It's mixed with hope. Look at this passage again. Look at verse 13. The end of it, it says, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, now look, grief is acknowledged here. Now, let me just be very clear. If you are a believer and someone you love, especially another believer, they pass away, it's okay to grieve. You're not supposed to hold it all inside and be like, you know what, I'm such a mature Christian that I trust in the resurrection, and I trust that they're going to be in heaven, and so you know what, this doesn't impact me emotionally at all. That's not, that's not how the Bible instructs us. You want me to give you an example? You don't have to turn there, but Jesus in John chapter 11, when his friend Lazarus dies, now, really quickly, anyone here more spiritually mature than Jesus? Anybody? Okay, so no one raised their hand. How did Jesus respond? Was he, was he cool, calm, and collected? Be like, oh yeah, it's going to be all good. He's going to be with the Father. No worries at all. No, the scripture says he cried. He, he cried. Why? Over the sinfulness of, of, of the broken world? Over the loss and over death that exists? cried because he loved Lazarus. Don't let anyone tell you you can't cry when someone near you dies. Don't let anyone tell you that that's immature as a believer. Listen, grief is real. Grief is not something we bury. Grief is not something we hide. Grief is not something we ignore. Listen, it's painful. This grief is acknowledged in this passage. But, but here's what else is acknowledged. Hope is acknowledged. This says that we do not grieve as others. This is talking about those outside of Christ. It says we do not grieve as others who have no hope. Who have no hope. Hey, 
To, to grieve, to, to miss and to grieve someone who passes away, it is right and it is good and it is appropriate. But, but to be consumed by your grief, to miss and to grieve someone's passing and the void that now exists, and to do that only focusing on your loss and, and, and separating it from the reality of the eternal hope that exists for them, that's also not the Christian response. It's almost like there's two ends of a spectrum. One end says, I don't grieve at all. The other one says, I grieve and that's all I do. And as those who are in Christ, who, have, who trust in his death and resurrection, we, we mix them. We say, I grieve, but I hope. Just close your eyes for a moment right now. I'm guessing most everyone in this room has lost a loved one over the last year to two years. Some of us have lost loved ones because of, because of COVID. Some of us have lost, lost loved ones because, of, because the, the, their time had come. They, they had a good old age life. Some of us have lost loved ones for random reasons. Can, can you say, I grieve yet I hope. I grieve. I'm in sorrow. This is painful, yet I hope. Because Jesus is faithful and he is good and the resurrection is coming. This is where we start tonight. Why don't you go ahead and open your eyes back up. We grieve because there is pain and death, but, but but it's not just that there's pain and death presented in this passage. Not only is there pain and death, but, but turn to verse 14. We see also that th there is a promise in Christ. Yes, there is pain and death, but yes, there is a promise in Christ. Verse 14 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There is a promise here. What is this promise? Let, let's unravel this promise. This promise is, first of all, it's really big picture. It's a promise of the resurrection of the dead. The Bible's promise is that you, that your body, that if it dies, and when it dies... There will be a resurrection. We're going to unravel this a little bit more in a moment. But the promise is a resurrection of the dead. But look, church, at this verse. I think every person listening right now, in person, online, all of us, I think you can see what this promise is built on. Look at verse 14. Just, just turn your eyes to it. What is this promise built on? Is it built on your ability to live a long life and, and be alive when Jesus returns? Is it built on your ability to be a good Christian boy or a good Christian girl and do all the right things, or at least to do more good things than bad things? Is that what it's built on? It's not built on that. You can see. It says, since we believe. That word since can be translated if. If we believe, what? That Jesus died and rose again. This is what our hope rests on. This is what the promise is built on. Without this, our, all we're really left with is grief. This promise is built on the gospel. It's built on the fact that you and I, we, we can never be good enough. We can never earn God's approval. We can't do more good than wrong, and so God's going to give us a pass for all the wrong we've done. That doesn't work. The only thing we can do is come before him in our sin and in our rebellion and in our brokenness and say, God, have mercy. And he says, I do because I sent Jesus to die for you. And in his death, the entirety of your sin was paid for. And he says, and Jesus did not stay in the ground, but he was resurrected. And if you trust in Jesus' death and in his resurrection, you are given a new life right now. But listen, you are promised. You're promised a resurrected body as well. That's the promise. 
as, as someone who's in that halfway spot, I'm learning to look forward to that resurrected body more and more. Ten years ago, didn't think about it. Twenty years ago, probably internally laughed at it. But now I see how beautiful this promise is. That Jesus is going to come, and, and he is going to, he's going to bring, he's going to come, and he's going to bring with him those who have already fallen asleep. We're going to un- unravel that in a moment. And ultimately, it's going to end with their resurrected body. See, this promise, the promise is for you who are alive. This is meant to impact you right now. This is meant to be the kind of promise that you cling to as your body fails you little by little. And listen very carefully. This is meant to be the kind of promise that you cling to, both hands, white-knuckled, that you hold on to so tightly when your loved ones who are in Christ pass away. This is why you grieve, yet you hope. But that's actually not the main application here. The main application isn't simply this promise is for you who are alive. The point Paul is actually really making here is this promise applies to those who have died. This promise applies to those who have died. He's actually trying to address the concern or the question, what about those who have already died? How does the resurrection impact them? Now, Paul's term here. He uses the term fallen asleep. Now, now in the New Testament, the word sleep, it only ever refers to the body and never to the soul. There are some that teach that falling asleep is actually referring to your body and your soul, your body dying, your soul going to sleep, and so you are going to be buried, and your soul is going to be in that body for who knows how long until Jesus says it's time for me to come back. That's not the biblical teaching, though. The biblical teaching, look at passages like 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 9. Paul clarifies this. He says, so we are always of good courage. Why are we of good courage? Why do we, why do we have this strength in us? Here's what he says. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. If we're in this body, our soul, it is, it is in our body, and it is not in the, the centralized presence of the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body, where? And at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Here's what he's saying. Your body may die or, his euphemism, sleep. And if that happens, your soul, where will it be? Your soul, it will be with the Lord. Now, this, is, this is a key false teaching of, of uh, the Seventh-day Adventist church. And this isn't to pick a fight, but this is just to, to, to be really clear because I, I have known people that they were terrified of death because they were certain they were going to be trapped in their body until Jesus returns. This fearful belief that you die and your, your soul and body are entombed together for however long it takes, this is not the teaching of Paul. This is not the teaching of Jesus. Remember him on the cross with one of the thieves. What does he say? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. This isn't the teaching of the Bible at all. You see, what we see is a hole in the scripture. If you have trusted in Christ, you have this promise. That means those who have already died, where are they right now? Are they fearfully in their bodies in a tomb just waiting and waiting and waiting? According to the scripture, they are with the Lord. See, see this, is, this is the pain. There is a pain in death, and yet there is a promise in Christ. But let's keep going into verses 15 through 17. This means that there is actually, there is a plan for resurrection. Anybody here a planner? 
Anybody here, whenever you do something, you want to have every step lined out as, as clear as possible? How about someone who, who you're not a planner at all? You're completely spontaneous, fly by the seat of your pants. You're like, hey, I got a good idea. Let's, let's just go on vacation tomorrow. Like, I have no idea where we're going. It, no one raising their hand for spontaneous. They don't want to. Okay, one. Okay. A few. You know the Lord, when it comes to the end, he has a plan. He's not making it up as he goes along. He's not saying, well, we're going to try this and see if it works out well. Listen, the Lord has a plan. We're going to talk about part of that plan tonight. We're going to talk about more of that plan <clears throat> next week. But, but look at this, verses 15 through 17. There is a plan for re the resurrection. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. He says, in the resurrection, those who are on earth, when Christ catches up his church, calls up his church, those who are alive, you don't get to go first. Keep going. Verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. You know what the plan for resurrection is? Let's back up a little bit. Here's where the plan for resurrection begins. First, Jesus descends with the resurrected body. See, see all other resurrections with a, with a resurrected body, all of them depend on one thing, that Jesus himself was resurrected. Je this says that Jesus will, he will descend with a resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us of this. We're going we're gonna to bounce back and forth between these two passages for a moment. But verse 20, here's what verse 20 says. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, Christ didn't fall asleep. Christ died and, and he was, he, he's what's considered the very first fruits. This is like the picture of a harvest. And what is the first fruit of the harvest? Christ himself. He is the beginning of the harvest, not of an apple orchard or not of wheat in the field. He is the beginning of the harvest of all of the people of God. It starts, it begins with Christ. Now you think, well, Mike, you just reminded us of Lazarus. He was resurrected before Jesus, isn't, isn't he the first fruit? That's a good question, isn't it? But Lazarus died again. <laughs> he, he wasn't resurrected with a resurrected body. He was resurrected with the, the old body. He, he had to go through the process of death <laughs> twice. But, but Christ is the first fruit resurrected with the resurrected, imperishable, eternal body. That's first. First, Christ descends with a resurrected body. And then you get uh, to verse, or, or second. Second, those dead in Christ will rise with a resurrected body. L look at the end of verse 16. It says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is talking about their, their physical bodies, but, but they're not going to be their old physical bodies. This is talking about a resurrection of their bodies. But, but, but look with me. Back up just a moment to verse, verse 14. It says, those in Christ are going to be, there will be resurrected. Those dead in Christ will be resurrected. But verse 14 says, since we believe that Jesus died and arose again, even so, through Jesus, look at this, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Where are those who have fallen asleep coming from? Well, their soul is coming with Christ as he descends. And their bodies, where are their bodies? Are they in heaven? No. They're in the earth. Their bodies will be resurrected, and they'll have a brand new resurrected body as their soul meets them as Christ 
as he begins to descend. First, Christ is resurrected. Second, those who have fallen asleep, those dead in Christ, they are resurrected, soul and body joined. It, it, Paul even describes this again, back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 52. Paul says this, look at this language. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This body I have, it's perishable. It's not going to last. I need something new. I need something imperishable. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. This is God's plan. God's going to have Christ, the first fruit, descend with those who have already, their souls are already with them, and then there will be a resurrection soul and body joined. And then third, those alive in Christ will be caught up with resurrected bodies. This would be you right now if Christ came back. Right now, if Christ came back, you wouldn't be first in line. But your loved ones who are in Christ who have passed away would be. And you and I, we would be right on their heels. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed from perishable to imperishable. To, from, from mortal to, to immortal. This is the plan. Verse 17 says, And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, where? In the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That word caught up is a, so much hinges in that word. That word caught up can mean carried away or taken up. It can mean gathered up. It can mean snatched up or, or snatched away. It says we will be caught up, will be carried up, will be lifted up, will be snatched up to meet with him in the air. Not Christ coming to earth. We've talked about this some before, and we'll talk about this some likely more next week. This this isn't his second coming. This isn't when he comes to judge the earth. This is when he comes to harvest the rest of the crop, to catch you up, to go and to be with him. Oftentimes, this, this is actually called the rapture. Some call it the, trans, or the translation. The reason it's called the rapture is because of the Latin word for that word caught up it's where we get our word rapture from. This is what, when, when Christians talk about the rapture, this is what we refer to. The, 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 the snatching up of Christians to go be with the Lord. The, the one day you're here and you're trugging along and, and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and then in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, not just those in dead in Christ, but those alive in Christ on earth will be snatched up to be with him. This is what we're talking about. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 15 again. I just want to read a chunk of it. I think it's... I think this is overwhelming to our souls. I'm going to read verses 50 through 55, and this might be one of those passages you simply want to close your eyes and, and marinate in it for a moment. Just let it wash over your heart and your mind and your soul. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all be, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised 
imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where? Is your sting. See, church, death is painful. But there's a death of death in the victory of Christ that is coming in the moment of the resurrection. In that moment, what you and I will be singing, besides praise God from whom all blessings flow, what we will be singing in that moment is this, death Where's your victory? Death, where is your sting? There is nothing you can do now. You, you can't touch me at all. Now, what, what happens after the rapture? What happens after the church is caught up? This is, we're going to take a little bit of a sidestep. We're going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole just for a moment. But what I believe in the timeline of this moment, as God removes his church from the earth as God removes his spirit that dwells in believers from the earth and then God begins his plan of judgment upon the earth. What happens for those who are caught up, who are raptured? I like to call it a moment of judgment and joy. You're thinking, judgment? That doesn't sound very fun. But the Bible's actually clear. There's actually a passage that we referred to briefly a moment ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We, a moment ago, we read verses 6 through 9. But I want, to see, I want you to see the judgment that you and I, we will all experience. And this is not a judgment that says, I'm going to judge whether you go to heaven or hell. This is not a judgment to eternal life, but to eternal reward. Here's what it says. Right after speaking about when we're away from our body, we'll be with the Lord. Verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's talk about Christians. This isn't talking about judgment to eternal life or eternal death. This is talking about you and I when we stand before the Lord and not answering the question, did you believe that Christ was a Savior? No, we've already answered that question. He knows that. He's lifted us. He's caught us up with him. This is when we answer the question, what would you do with the rest of your life? What would you do with all of the time that I gave you? What would you do with all of the, the resources and the finances I gave you? How did you care for the family I gave you? How did you encourage and love the church that I gave you? What would you do with your life? What would you do with it? This is the, the judgment we will all stand and give an account. Now, I, I tend to think the rewards we get, this is my own, I, I haven't flushed this out completely. I tend to think the rewards we get will just be crown upon crown that we get to go and lay at his feet. <laughs> I don't know exactly how it's going to work. and uh, In time, I'll dig that out a little more. But, uh, but I tend to think it's not going to be us walking around, look at my crown. Psh, look at your crown. <laughs> I think it's going to be us laying, I'm going to lay it all down at his feet because it's all because of him. But what do you want to lay before his feet in that moment? What kind of honor do you want to give the Lord, the King of glory, who saved you, who rescued you and delivered you? See, see after the rapture, I think that there, there's a judgment, but I also think there's a joy. There's a joy when the church is brought to be with Christ. This is the church. Do you realize the church, one of the terms used to describe the church in relationship to Christ is the bride? Now, us guys, we kind of recoil against that. Like, I, 
I'm not no broad. I'm not wearing no dress, right? Like, that's not really the most flattering language. But I'm going to tell you, guys, this is the one time where you can say, I want to be part of, I want to be a bride. I want to be part of the bride, the church. Look at Revelation 19. Verses 6 through 8. This is talking about what I believe is moments after the the church is raptured up, brought into the presence of Christ. This is before the final judgments, actually, but this is when the church is with Christ, even during Revelation. It says, verses 6 through 8, Then I heard what seemed like seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. And his bride has, been, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. For the fine linen is... The righteous deeds of the saints. This is the church gathered. This is the wedding of the Lamb. And look at what the church wears. This is, this might throw a wrench in your theology a little bit. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The fine linen is how you've lived your life. The the fine linen is your reward. It's all to reflect Christ, but it all, it's what you and I end up carrying. Now, next week, we'll we'll talk more about this. Now, I want to step back to our passage now. We've seen this is what happens after that moment, but let's step back to our passage. We see the plan. The plan is Jesus comes with a resurrected body, that he gathers the dead in Christ into resurrected bodies. He gathers the alive in Christ into resurrected bodies. And here's the point. All in Christ will be caught up with resurrected bodies. Why? To be with Christ. That's the point here. That's the point. So so here's what we've seen. We've seen that there's a real pain in death. We've seen there's a real promise in the gospel of Christ. We've seen that in that promise that there is a plan for resurrection. And so what does that leave you with tonight? Let me just be real practical for a moment because there is a practical application for you in this when we talk about end times my goal here tonight is not listen very carefully my goal here tonight is to make you a little bit smarter so you can explain the end times a little bit better to someone else maybe even with a chip on your shoulder if if that's all that we accomplish tonight i have failed That's not the goal. All that we've talked about tonight, it lands on verse 18 in the practical application that every one of us receive. We're talking about you tonight. Every one of us, elder or brand new Christian, young or old, all of us, this is the practical application. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let me read that again. Therefore, because there is pain in death, because there is a promise in Christ, because there is a plan for resurrection, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Come alongside and strengthen one another. Don't leave everyone alone to deal with their grief on their own. Seriously, the the word encourage, come right next to me and share these words of encouragement. Let me me specify this in two ways. I, I think this means, first of all, this means we are to encourage believers who mourn. We encourage believers who mourn to remember Christ's promise. When someone close to us passes away, it's really easy to go down the hole of grief. It's really easy to get stuck in our pain. You want to know one of the greatest gifts that you can give to someone in their pain and in their sorrow and in their grief? It's not to say, hey, get over it. It's not to say, it'll be okay. It's to, in the right time and in the right way, 
how you say it is just as important as what you say. To say, I know this hurts. But you know where our brother is now, right? I know this hurts. But you know that they have been rescued and they are now not in their earthly tent. Where are they right now? But they are in the presence of the Lord. That's how we encourage one another with these words. Sometimes, you know what this looks like? As a pastor, I think I get this opportunity maybe more than some. This looks like sitting with our loved one who they know the end is coming. And it's scary. I've been at very few bedsides where the person was without any fear whatsoever. <laughs> it's scary. Even those with the strongest faith, there is a sense of fear and worry and concern as they trust in Christ. And in those moments, we can open up the word and we can read these words of Scripture and we can encourage them to remember Christ isn't going to leave you. He, he is about to rescue you into his eternal kingdom. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We encourage believers who mourn to look to Christ and his promise. But, but I want to extend the application a little bit further. I want to extend the application, and I recognize this. This is, I'm just going to tell you right now, this is more philosophical than rooted word for word in the text. I don't do this very often, but I think this is appropriate in this moment. Secondly, I think this means we need to encourage those not in Christ to consider Christ's salvation. We need to encourage those in our lives that we love and that we care for. We need to encourage them to consider the salvation that is freely offered in Jesus Christ. One of my mentors, he used to say, Mike, I, I really, weddings are okay to do, but I really like doing funerals. And I was like, okay, you're kind of weird. He says, Mike, when I do a funeral, I know that most of the people in that room have not heard of Christ or not trusted Christ. And I just get the privilege of gently calling them to trust Jesus. And sometimes in those moments, the Spirit of God works and delivers someone. But I'm going to tell you something right now. We live in a culture. Look, we live in a culture where the world at large has less trust of, of the talking head. I get that. The, the world comes in. They hear me talking. Your friend comes in. They hear me talking. They don't know me. They don't know if they should trust me, right? I totally get that. That doesn't make me mad. That's just the reality. But you know who they trust? You. So if they hear me talk about Christ, they'll be like, hmm, hmm, what's this guy's angle? But if they hear you talk about Christ, they'll say, huh, maybe I need to consider this. Maybe I should put some thought into this. Maybe I should ask a few questions. Maybe I should try to read that passage of scripture they've reminded me of. Here's the two applications. Encourage believers who mourn to remember Christ's promise and encourage those not in Christ to consider salvation. You know, Andrew and I didn't coordinate it, but, but his, his request for you to write the name of someone who you're praying for their salvation on your card, it's like the spirit was working perfectly. Well, let's, let's return to that as we end. Let's take a moment, let's pray for those people that we know who have yet to trust Christ. We have this great promise. We have the promise of resurrection. Let's take these next moments and individually, quietly, not, not out loud, but will you bow your head? And will you go to the Lord? And will you pray that God will give you opportunity to encourage someone that you know, pray for them by name, to trust Christ Will you take this moment to, to ask God to give you the opportunity to share with them? Ask God to soften their heart and to move in their mind that they would be open to the gospel of salvation. Let's just pray for a moment.
Heavenly Father, we ask that you would hear these prayers. Father, we lift up loved ones, family members, neighbors, co-workers. We lift up these names to you, asking that your spirit would do what we can't. Your spirit would open their heart and mind. Your spirit would reveal the need they have for a savior. And that in that, you would give us the the gift of an opportunity to talk about the hope that we have in Christ. Father, we beg for the salvation of these people that are dear to us. We, We ask that you would have mercy upon them just as you have had mercy upon each of us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I'm so glad you were here tonight. I, I know we covered a lot of ground, and I know we covered some big ideas. If, if you've got questions, if you've got comments, if you've got curiosities, feel free to grab me. I'll, I'll stick around. We, we can talk. I also know we, we touched on some heart things. This is heavy at times. I would encourage you to, to hold on to the promise that Christ offers you. And I'm so glad you got to be here tonight and to be reminded of it. Now, we're going to conclude tonight. We've got one more song that we're going to sing together. But and as we sing, I want to invite you to continue to participate in the mission and the ministry here at Valley. You've been hearing about it week after week. We've got some incre- incredible things going on with the kids' ministry. Last night was testimony of that. Uh, so many ways we're engaging families and starting to engage our community. And I want to say thank you to those who faithfully and, and just so generously give to the mission and the ministry here at Valley. If that's you, if you're part of the church family, you, you can give online. Thank you if that's what you do. You can also give in person at the, the places we have by the doors and in the front. Um, if you're not part of the Valley Church family, if you're just here as a guest, I don't want you to feel any pressure whatsoever to give. But, but again, thank you for those who do. It is, a, it is a joy to partner with you in this ministry. Can we all stand together? And I'd like to pray one more time, and then we'll receive any offering and, and, and sing our last song as we rejoice in what God has done and what he's promised. Heavenly Father, we, once again, we, we come to you rejoicing in your promises. We come to you with a, an honest recognition that the things we've talked about tonight, death, it's hard. And we know it's coming for each of us, and, and we're, we certainly have people that we love who are near it. So in this, Father, we pray that you would give us opportunity to apply what we've heard tonight. Help us to encourage our brothers and sisters to, to take heart, to be strong, knowing the resurrection promise is sure. And Lord, help us to be aware of those who who are in our lives, who have yet to experience this gift of of Christ. Father, once again, we we pray for those opportunities to to converse with them and serve them. We pray all of this in Jesus' great name. Amen.